we've been looking at Daniel chapter by chapter, and um, one of the things that's been impressive, I guess, is the way that Daniel um, was able to be so faithful over such a long time in such bad circumstances. Uh, after all, he'd been captured, taken into exile uh, against his will. It wasn't something he planned for or wanted to do, not like us. Some of us, we are kind of, you know, kind of in exile, aren't we? Kind of. Um, but we chose to do that. All of us did one way or another. Um, but not Daniel. He was taken and um, given training, you know, selected for training and given training. Um, and we've seen how from his earliest time, he, he kind of set limits and said, well, this I will do and that I won't. And uh, all the way through his career then, uh, as, a, as a top civil servant, yeah, as a top civil servant in successive empires to successive kings, um, he was able to be so faithful. Now, um, we come to Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel chapter 7, if you look on the back of your sheet, and I've lost my sheet. What have I done with my sheet? Here we are. Um, if you look on the back of your sheet, you have this kind of schematic. That's a good word, isn't it? A schematic of Daniel, which um, gives you a kind of overview. Now, it's, it's, um, for one thing, it's printed quite small, so you either need long arms or your glasses on. Um, but there are certain things you can see about it. First thing you can see is that Daniel is one of the funny books of the Bible where it's actually written in two different languages. So Daniel begins in Hebrew, and chapter 1, he starts off talking in Hebrew about the exile, and about the, the early days in exile. Then chapter 2 through to 7 is in Aramaic. Now, Aramaic is the language of, uh, of Babylon, of where they, where they were exiled. And so he's writing there in the language of exile. And then chapters 8 through to the end, again, he's writing in Hebrew, okay? Now, I just mentioned that to you uh, to point that out because uh, Daniel chapter 7, we're at the end of the Aramaic section. So you would imagine, like, for if, if, if I was Daniel, I'm not Daniel, you know, I'm not that old, not yet. But if I was Daniel, um, I would have written chapter 1, in uh, English, chapter 2 through to 7 in French, and then chapters 8 on to 12 I would have written in English again. Now why would I do that? Why would I write some things in English and some things in French? When do I write things in French and when do I write things in English? Well I write things in English when it's an internal document, yeah? I tend to write to the majority of you in English. It's an internal document, something meant for us. And we don't, we don't worry if other people have problems understanding because it's meant for us. When I write in French, it's because I want the whole world to understand. You know, the world out there to understand. And I suspect that Daniel is doing the same thing. I suspect that in chapter 1 and 8 to the end, what he's writing, uh, or his purpose in writing, is very largely to encourage God's people. Yeah? And to that extent, it doesn't really matter whether, Babylon, whether the Babylonians understand or not. But my suspicion is that in chapter 2 to 7, uh, Daniel is writing, in a way, a kind of testimony. Yeah? A kind of witness. He's making his case 
he's stating things that he wants all the Babylonians to understand. And so he writes about um, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He writes about Belshazzar and the feast. He writes about uh, the way that um, Cyrus was humbled. Uh, he writes these things because he wants them to understand and to know. Yeah? And so here in chapter 7, he's at the last stage of those things that he wants everyone to understand. He wants to be sure that everyone uh, that he's speaking to will understand. He's witnessing, if you like, to Babylon. Now chapter 7 again, and you can see this on the schematic. Doo -doo -doo, here we are. Um, the idea is you start chapter 1 and you go 2, 3, 4, going downwards. And then you zoom across 5, 6, 7. Because 2 and 7 kind of go together. 3 and 6 kind of go together. And 4 and 5 kind of go together, okay? So chapter 2 and chapter 7 kind of go together. How do we see that? Well, um, firstly, um, you can see from the timestamp in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So we're way back before uh, stuff that has happened later. But not only that, chapter 7 is kind of like a reflection of chapter 2 in this. Chapter 2 is about the king's dream. The king has this dream of this statue that is constructed of different materials and he's troubled by it. And Daniel um, understands and gives the king the interpretation. Chapter 7, there's a similar dream, but now it's Daniel who has the dream. And Daniel says, I don't understand. And so the dream is interpreted for him, and now Daniel is troubled. So it's kind of like the other way around, isn't it? The king is troubled, Daniel explains, and the king isn't troubled anymore. Daniel, it goes the other way. Daniel doesn't understand. It's interpreted for him, and now he's really concerned. Yeah? So you can see there's a kind of mirror image going on. Okay, well, that's enough of the technical stuff. What are we going to get from Daniel 7 this evening? And I was kind of, you know, I kind of... A, a, a lot of my work is trying to think deeply about what on earth I can say to you. Uh, I can't thought, what can I say to them about this? That will be fresh, that will be useful, that will be interesting, that will be helpful. And I thought, well... One thing that we saw last week was Daniel, you know, he's, he's respectful, he's hardworking, he's not corrupt, he's, he's a good guy, and yet he's so defiant. You know, um, the law is passed, do not pray. So Daniel says, you know, opens his windows as his, his habit is, and gets down on his knees and prays. And we thought, how does Daniel do that? What is it that makes someone into a Daniel? Because it's all well good for me to say to you, hey, look, look how cool Daniel is. Be cool, you know, be cool like Daniel. Yeah, but how? How do you take someone like me and turn me into a Daniel? What can possibly do that? And I thought, well, maybe chapter 7 will help us. And so that's what we're looking for. How does Daniel cope? And my thesis to you is this. We have the same resources available to us as God's people today as Daniel did then. Okay? Uh, I'm going to repeat that bit in French because I think that's important. Le but c'est pas que Daniel soit notre héros et qu'on soit tous, qu'on imite tous Daniel. Bon, voilà, il faut que vous soyez cool comme Daniel était cool. Ou quelque chose comme ça. C'est pas le but. Le but ce soir, c'est de voir que nous avons, en tant que le peuple de Dieu, 
nous avons les mêmes ressources que Daniel et ces mêmes ressources peuvent nous fortifier et nous euh, rendre fidèles et forts euh, de la même manière qu'avec Daniel. OK? So that's, that's where we're going. OK. And I've got three big things to say. I hope you're keeping up with me. Are you, are you doing OK? I think so. Good. <laughs> I send him titles and then I go off on, on one and he doesn't know where he is. It's, it's, it's a nightmare working with me. You don't want to do that if you can avoid it. OK. The first one... The first heading, okay, see through. Now, they're all places to see, okay? The first one, see through. Um, <laughs> this, these next chapters of Daniel, um, and um, Sylvain is going to preach on one of the chapters soon, and then James is going to preach. And uh, um, They're not easy, these chapters, because they are written in what we call apocalyptic Now, apocalyptic, you immediately think, oh, that's those films about the end of the world, isn't it? Global catastrophe and stuff. Uh, actually, no, that isn't really what apocalyptic means. Apocalyptic is a funny old word because it's actually quite an easy word. It means stuff revealed or stuff unveiled. Yeah? That's the idea of apocalyptic. The idea is that you... Uh, and in, in the church we had in North Wales at one time, uh, there was a curtain behind me, and if I pulled the curtain back, the sun blazed in. It's marvellous for illustrations, because you could pull the curtain back, and the sun would blaze in, you'd say, look, you can see it. Now you can't. Now you see it, now you don't. Um, and it's like that, apocalyptic, is like that. It's drawing back the curtain, because there's all kinds of stuff going on that you don't see, that we don't see. And what apocalyptic does is it draws back the curtains so that we can see what was always there all the time. Yeah? So please, when you see apocalyptic, don't immediately think, oh yeah, that means end of the world. No. What it means is enabling you to see what was there all the time, but you just couldn't see it. Now, it is written in symbols, in imagery, But its whole idea is to give you a glimpse behind the curtain. That's what it's doing, okay? So, firstly, to see through. And um, Daniel <clears throat> tells us in Daniel chapter 7 what human government and human power is like. He has this dream, and we're quite familiar with the dream by now, of these kind of um, successive empires. Uh, and here, in Daniel's case... It's the sea, and the sea is being churned up. And uh, in Jewish culture, the sea being churned up, I mean, the sea was kind of scary already. But once you got the sea being churned up, it's a bit like us, you know? Uh, they give us these orange alerts for storms, and after a while you get used to them. You think, oh, there's not going to be a storm, but then one day there is, and it blows everything away, or your roof off. Um, well, the sea in Jewish culture was this huge kind of chaotic, churning, in, unstable thing. And um, Daniel sees coming out of this churning sea successive beasts. And the beasts are different empires, successive empires. And the beasts, are, the first is like a lion that has the wings of an eagle. It moves swiftly. The second, he says, looks like a bear. And it's raised up on one of its sides. It has ribs in its mouth. It's ferocious and it's on the move. The third is like a leopard and has wings like a bird. And then the fourth beast has all these horns. And then there are three particular horns. And then another horn that succeeds the three. And all of these beasts are frightening. 
And all of these beasts are violent. And all of these beasts are forceful. And the one succeeds the other. And Daniel could tell you, yeah, and boy, did I see this. He lived through this. He knew what that was like. He'd seen successive beasts uh, take power. Um, and so here is human government and power. And we see what it's like. Um, it's beastly. Okay? Beastly. Um, in French, I've used the word monstre. Because uh, bet, I think, kind of, you know, doesn't really convey the right thing. Um, so, human government is beastly. Now, we have to be careful here, don't we? Because human government is not a bad thing. You know, it's God's plan that there should be governments. It's God's will. Uh, Paul tells us that the government is God's instrument, God's servant. Uh, it will give account to God. And so government is a good thing. But at the same time, government is human. And because it's human, it's sinful. When we say that things are human, what we really mean is somewhat less than human. And I mean that for you as well. We are all somewhat less than really human. Because we are not as God intended us to be. Yeah? Every faculty we have, the way we think, the things we want, our desires, everything is twisted. It's twisted by sin. Sin has percolated through our being. It's soaked all the way through. Uh, and so everything we do and everything we are is touched and tainted by sin. It makes us just that little bit less than human. And that's why uh, there's this mixed image of these um, empires. Sometimes they're kindly. Sometimes they're less kindly. But always they're mixed. And always there's this aspect of being uh, forceful and somewhat less than God intended. Um, <clears throat> and this aspect of being mixed, we have to take this into, into consideration because we live in a country with a benign government, by and large, don't we? You know, um, nobody in the French government is thinking, I know, let's persecute the Christians, let's throw them all in jail, let's, uh, let's drive the pastors out of France. Let's drive Christianity out. Nobody's thinking that. Nobody is thinking, well, let's, let's uh, move against the people and, and fire against the people. Let's, let's wake war against our own people. There are governments that do that, but the French government isn't doing that. The French government is largely benign. Yeah, it's a kindly government. But at the same time, uh, it has those failings that come from human sin. And bad governments... And we would think of perhaps the uh, fall of communism in Europe. Uh, bad governments uh, that are harsh and uh, cruel and manage things badly. Still, when communism fell, there were people in Russia who said, well, yeah, you know, communism wasn't that good. But maybe things were better under the communists than they are now. Because at least it kept the lid on crime. You didn't have the gangs. You had corruption, but you didn't have the gangs that you had later. And so there's this mixedness about all human government. And Daniel knew that because he'd worked for four different pagan kings. Uh, he'd seen them come and he'd seen them go. And there are some things that we need to remember then as we see through. And the first is this, that all human government is temporary. It's temporary. And um, in democracy, we tend to think that's a good thing, don't we? 
the good thing about democracy is you can kick them out, you know? You vote them in, uh, within a couple of months you don't like them anymore, uh, but you only have to wait four years and you can kick them out. You know, it's marvellous really, isn't it? Um, and uh, even the ones we like, we can only keep for two terms, I think. Two terms? Uh, two, um, I think. Uh, two terms and you have to kick them out and get someone more. Um, I think that's the case. I might be wrong. Uh, but that's, that's what democracy is. It doesn't mean you get necessarily a better government. It means you can get rid of it. That's, that's what you can do. You can get rid of it. Um, but all regimes collapse eventually because God sets limits. You can see here, um, Daniel is told that um, one kingdom will last for a time, times, and half a time. Yeah? Now, much innocent ink has been spilt over the meaning of time, times, and half a time. But one thing that is very, very clear is this. God sets a limit. He says, thus far and no further. And the day comes when regimes collapse. And they collapse because God says, that's enough now. And so that gives us this instability and this chaos and this upheaval. Uh, and often in our lives we can feel uh, overpowered, can't we? Now, this is where I need to put an interjection in. Because we see in our day something that Daniel didn't see. Um, we see that it's not just nations now that have power, but it's things like big global corporations. Um, we've seen over the past couple of months um, the uh, CEO of Facebook um, summoned by the European Union to give an account of the dealings of his company. Why? Because his company affects people in virtually every country of the world. And you think, whoa, faced with these companies, and it's not just people like Facebook and Google and Microsoft and Apple, but it's also com companies like Monsanto and so on. You know, some of these, we, we say the word Monsanto and some people go, you know? Um, and, and that's the world we live in now, where com companies have as much power as countries, and more, more. And we think, well, what do you do then? What do you do faced with that? And then in our own little lives, um, we can be totally um, overwhelmed by various things, like the power of banks, or the power of companies, or the power of uh, our faculties, you know? Um, you're, you're faced with things that are just out of your control, and there's nothing you can do uh, to make things work better. And we can feel so overpowered. And Daniel says, see through it, learn to see through it, that all these things, yeah, they have this human mixedness about it. There are good things and there are bad things. But everything is temporary. Everything is provisoire. And when we feel overpowered by things, yeah, it is stronger than us. But it's not stronger than him. So first thing is see through. Second thing is see above. Are we more or less in sync? Whoa, look at that. Uh, see above. Um, because Daniel sees this world of beasts and of chaos and of violence, a churning, unstable world. But then he sees something else, and he sees the Ancient of Days. Yeah, the Ancient of Days. Here is one who doesn't measure his kingdom in uh, years or decades. Here is one who is the Ancient of Days. He rules from everlasting. 
and in verses 9 to 10, and I like the way the NIV sets it out because verses 9 to 10 in the NIV are kind of poetic, yeah? And uh, we've got this churning world with beasts pursuing each other, and then all of a sudden, as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. And here is the scene then of, you know, like, there's some great ceremony of state. And there's a procession, and the procession comes in, and they always walk really slowly, don't they? And there's music, uh, often grand music, sometimes just one little voice with a trumpet and an organ or something, and in comes the procession. And there's this kind of still, isn't there? It's all starting off, and there's a calm about it all. And that's, that's the feeling that we get here. It's a scene of calm. It's a scene of purity. Uh, we have things that are white. We have things that are blazing with fire. Uh, it's a scene of wisdom and knowledge. Books are opened. And there's measured consideration. It's nothing that happens hurriedly. Uh, everything happens with due reflection. And it's a place of peace. And it's a place of agreement. And that is such a contrast with the world that we live in. The world that we live in which is in upheaval and in torment and things change all the time and there's instability. But here there is stability and there is peace and there is calm. It's a wonderful picture. Um, it made me think of a hymn, Immortal Invisible. Um, and one of the verses of this hymn, are Unresting, Unhasting, and Silent as Light. Um, alors, euh, unresting, ça veut dire sans se reposer, sans se dépêcher, euh, et silencieux comme la lumière. On ne pense pas que la lumière est silencieuse, mais en fait, c'est vrai. Hein? Silencieux comme la lumière. Euh, nor wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might. Alors, sans avoir besoin de quelque chose, sans avoir trop de quelque chose, euh, vous, euh, ou tu règnes, um, on two pieces. Uh, thy justice like mountains, high soaring above. Alors, ça devient difficile. Ta justice comme des montagnes qui, qui montent uh, uh, au-dessus. Au um, justice like mountains high, mounting above. Uh, thy something which are fountains of goodness and love. Tes fontaines de bonté et d'amour. And it's just this picture of, of God who, he doesn't need to rush. He doesn't need to measure out his resources. You know, we sometimes, we think, well, if I do that, I'm going to be too tired to do that. And so we have to kind of plan the day according to how much time and how much energy we've got. Well, God isn't like that. God can act uh, in absolute calm. We, we, don't, we don't take him by surprise, and nobody does. He's not shocked when things happen, you know. 
Um, and he, he, he doesn't think, oh, I didn't get, I didn't get milk in, you know, oh, what a problem, I've got no milk, you know, it's, it's not like that. Or in the Davy house, oh, we've got no bread again. We never think of bread, you know. Uh, and um, God isn't like that. He's, he's always measured and calm and working out his plan, and it all goes to plan. It all goes to plan, because of his might and power and his wisdom and his, his peace. He's the God of peace. And that's an amazing thing, isn't it? I think, you see, that um, when Daniel opened his windows and prayed towards Jerusalem, he wasn't just looking at Jerusalem, he was also looking above. Um, because every time he looks at Jerusalem, he's looking up, and he's looking up above the instability that is Babylon, and above the chaos that is the, the machinations of the court. You know, all these, these kind of plots and intrigues that go on in the court. He's looking up above the violence, looking up above the suffering. He's, he's looking up to see a stable realm of justice uh, where God reigns supreme. And I think we need to do that too. I think we need to have times and God is, is kind to us in giving us the possibility of considering his reign, of just looking up and seeing him reigning in supremacy and in calm and in glory. Um, so many things are, are bigger than us. You know, we can't, we can't handle them. We can't change them. Uh, they break in on our plans and we think, oh no, you know, nothing's going to work out now. And all this kind of thing. And we all do it. I mean, I do, I do that all the time. Things happen and I think, oh no, how is this all going to work together? Um, and... One of the things that we, we put on our fridges sometimes is prayer changes things, okay? Well, that's very good. I have no problem with putting prayer changes things. But I think sometimes the thing prayer changes most is me, yeah? Prayer changes me. Why? Because it forces me to take time and look up, to stop panicking and to look up where God is still seated on his throne and he's still working out his plan and he's still working out his plan for me. Daniel sees something else too. And this is a marvellous thing really, isn't it? When we consider that Daniel is living in Babylon, he's living hundreds of years before the incarnation. Uh, but here we have verse 13 uh, down to um, 14 really. Look at this. Just look what he saw. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel sees the Lord Jesus Christ. But he sees the Lord Jesus Christ in a very particular way. Uh, he describes him as the Son of Man. And Jesus then takes up that that title, doesn't he? And uses that a lot when he talks to people. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. But this thing, the Son of Man, we read that and we think, oh, it's talking about his origin. You know, he was born of Mary. He's, he's a real man. And that is true, but actually, this phrase doesn't speak so much in this context of his origin as of his destination, where he's going. Not where he comes from, but where he's going. Because can you see, he's ascending 
That's what's happening. A man is ascending to the throne. He's going up to the ancient of days. And here is this man who's, who's been brought into God's presence. And he's going to be enthroned forever. He's going to reign forever. Earthly kings come and go. Um, and earthly kings are beastly. You know, they're, they're depicted as monsters here. Uh, but he is the Son of Man. And he is truly human. And we have this kind of paradox, don't we? The human kings are subhuman. Why? Uh, I'm not being unsympathetic. You know, I was monarchist. I, I, am, I am rather royalist than, than republican. I, I think the monarchy is not a bad idea. If you've got to have some, you know, why not? Um, but human kings and presidents, all of them. Why, why is there a problem? Well, the problem is because of sin. That's the problem. I got the problem too. It's not going to make me president. I'd be just as bad, you know. Um, the problem is sin. And so all human uh, kings, they're slightly less than human. Slightly less than God meant them to be. But this king, he's the divine king. And the amazing thing about him is he's completely and totally human. He's exactly what people should always have been. Why? Because he's without sin. That's what people should be like. They should be full of love and full of compassion, full of truth, uh, absolutely dependable. Um, that's what they should be like. Everyone should be like Jesus. But only Jesus is like Jesus because he's the only one free of sin. And so here is this king and he's the divine king. But because of that, he's truly human. And so we see how Jesus uses this claim. Um, he says in Matthew 26, he says, You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds. And um, he's echoing Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And here, Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is ushered into the presence of uh, the Ancient of Days and sits at his right hand. And he, our Jesus our best and closest friend, he reigns with all power, yeah? All the time, over all places and all people. Look at what it says. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. Um, you know there are some amazing languages in the world, aren't there? Um, people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so we need to see ahead. Yeah? It's not just a question of seeing through. And it's not just a question of seeing above. It's also a question of seeing ahead. Because we soon will see this reign of Jesus um, fully. Um, we'll see it worked out in this world. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of Hebrews chapter 2, where there are these Christian people, and it, it's, it's not been easy, yeah? And um, the letter is written to encourage them. And um, this, is, this is what is, or one part of what is said. It's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, about which we're speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified what is mankind that you're mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. 
You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so Jesus, uh, his great and glorious reign, one day we'll see it with our own eyes. We'll see it. We'll enter into this wonderful time of peace and of justice where all nations will live in harmony, where there'll be no more kind of, you know, the, um, the, that photo that's going around up the G7 summit um, showing the tensions between the great rulers of our nations, you know, who uh, they didn't quite get on as well as we might have hoped they would. And we all think, oh dear, here we go again. Well, it's not going to be like that. You know, there won't be these tensions. There will be peace and justice and harmony. And so we need to look ahead. And we can look ahead. You know, of all the people in Bordeaux, we can look ahead. What do other people have to look ahead to? What do they have to look ahead to? If you don't believe in Jesus, what do you have to look ahead to? What is there? You know, um, there's a slow decline, isn't there? Or a sudden accident or something like that. And that's, that's the good news for you, you know? That's what's ahead. But for those who believe in Jesus, there's, there's peace, there's glory, there's love, there's joy. There's uh, this great and universal king who we can trust because he is the divine king who is fully human. No failings, no sin, no problem. And I think, you see, that's one reason why we gather on Sunday. We gather on Sunday because all the week we're obsessed with one problem or another. You know, if it's not other people's problem, is ours. They come to us and they say, can you sort this out for me, please? And you try and sort it out and, you know, sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's just a phone call. Other times it's a succession of emails, you know, one after the other. And you wonder when it's all going to uh, be resolved. Or your own problems, and you think, well, you know, uh, I'm a fine one to talk about helping other people with their problems, because, you know, my list is long. Um, but when we gather on Sunday, we look in a different direction. We look through. We see through this world. And it's, it's um, a veneer. Yeah? It's surface. We see what it's really like. We look above. And we see where God is seated enthroned in peace and in calm, working out his plan. We look ahead where we see Jesus coming in, in majesty and in glory, where the, the king will one day be revealed in all his fullness. And so we look and we fix our eyes for a moment on our destination. We leave all our lesser goals to one side. You know all these little things we want to achieve. And we leave all those to one side and we fix our eyes on that great destination so that we can keep Jesus' kingdom in view. That's one reason why we share the bread and the wine. Uh, the bread and the wine, it's like, um, you know, when I was a kid, my mother would make Sunday lunch on Sundays. She was like that. And uh, um, when I got old enough to realise uh, the tricks that one could play, I would pretend to be asleep long enough until I heard the church bell ringing, because once the church bell rang, they couldn't send me to church, you see, it was too late. 
So I would hear the church bell ring and pretend to be asleep, and then I would get up, you see, and I could hang around the house, which was what small boys want to do. And um, my mother would be cooking Sunday lunch, and there would come a time when she would say, do you want a taste? Do you want a taste? Um, more formal speech, we'd use foretaste. Uh, in proper French, I guess you'd say an avant-goût. An avant-goût. Dégustation. De, de ce qui va venir. And the Lord's Supper is like that. It's an avant-goût. It's a taster of, of what's going to come. Because, you know, it's an amazing thing to be a Christian. God describes our everlasting hope as a banquet. Now, if you like your food, that's good news, isn't it? Not a two-hour lunch, you know? Two-hour lunch is a jolly good idea, but this is an everlasting banquet. This is a, this is a wedding breakfast that never ends. What a glorious picture, you know? Um, how marvellous. And uh, every Sunday then, we meet to get Jesus' kingdom back in view. Because otherwise we forget. And we get obsessed by all these little things. And when you have Jesus' kingdom in view, then, like Daniel, like Daniel, you can serve God and you can serve your generation. Because you, you have remembered what it means to see through, to see above, and to see ahead. Okay? Um, we're going to pray.